0: Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. And uh, ah, thanks, brother. And we're taking it to chapter 4, verse 1. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 12. Hear God's word. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect Well, when I was in grade school, I especially enjoyed the first 20 to 30 minutes that followed the midday recess, because it was during that time that the teacher would uh, pull out a book and begin to read. uh, Charlotte's Web, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach. I, I I think you've maybe been there. You know, it's funny because I don't ever remember a teacher during those days beginning to read a chapter with the very first paragraph. They would always start in the previous chapter with the last paragraph and then start reading. Why did they do that? Well, they did that to remind us where we left off and to bring us up to speed in the story. So this morning as we return to Philippians chapter 3, we, we need to do the same thing. We need to remember where we left off and we need to be brought up to speed before moving on because this uh, is the midpoint of a section that begins where Jackson did last week in chapter 3 verse 1 and ends where we will this morning in chapter 4 verse 1. And both parts of this section are tied together with this grammatical knot, if you will, that indicates if we want to understand where Paul is going in this chapter, we've got to understand where he's already been. So, what did we learn last week? Well, in chapter 3, verse 1, we saw that Paul commanded the Philippians to rejoice, to be a, a rejoicing people. Now... Jackson pointed out that this command begs the question, how how can you command an emotion? Well, as he went on to explain, the answer is Paul didn't mean put on a happy face. Rather, he meant that when the Philippians rejoiced, they were to do so in the Lord. And they were to do that in a couple of ways. First, by being true to the gospel that is uh, uh, not uh, a gospel of works, works of the flesh, but rather a gospel of grace and grace alone, nothing more, nothing less. And then, second, by knowing Christ, counting gain as loss for the sake of knowing Christ, verse 7. Counting everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ, verse 8. In fact, counting it all as rubbish. For the sake of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection, so that on the last day they may all attain to the resurrection of the dead. We we read that from verses 8 all the way down to 11. So for the Philippians to have rejoiced in any other way would have been to believe in a fake gospel, that is one of works, not of grace, and to have known a fake gospel, Christ, whose righteousness was augmented by their religious resumes. Now, in the midst of all of that, Paul makes the following point. He says if the gospel was about works, if if Christ's righteousness was augmented by my resume, then of anyone I should be bursting with confidence. Because as he points out in verses 5 and 6, Paul had the right religious pedigree. Paul was in the right religious profession. You remember he was a Pharisee at the time he came to faith. He possessed the requisite religious passion, even zeal. And he was perfect in keeping the religious law. In other words, if uh, someone could say that they'd made it, Paul was that man. If anyone could say that that he had arrived, Paul had arrived. And that brings us to our passage for today, where Paul in verse number 12 declares from the outset, but I haven't made it. (laughs) I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect. I haven't attained to what will only someday be mine and yours and ours. Instead, and here's a a preview to this morning's main point, instead Paul writes in verse number 12, while I haven't attained to what will be ours, I press on. That's the main point. I press on to make it my own. So, like Paul, those who belong to Christ are ones who are pressing on toward the day when he will Uh, receive in full the salvation for which Christ has already paid. While the one who doesn't belong to Christ is the one who is pressing forward to the day when he thinks he will receive in full the salvation for which he currently perceives himself to be working or thinks he's already paid for. And to make sure that the Philippians are crystal clear that, that Paul doesn't think he's that guy, he, he says again, he, he says here in verse 13, brothers, I don't consider yet that I have made it my own. As we saw a few weeks ago, a little sidebar here, As we saw a few weeks ago Paul speaking here about the, the multi-layered nature of salvation. I think Eric was the first one to, to bring that up, how uh, salvation occurs at a point in time. It's when we come to faith. Bible refers to that as being born again. Uh, uh, it occurs over the course of time as we grow in our faith. The Bible refers to that as sanctification. And then we're saved, of course, at the end of time when our faith finally becomes Sight when we've made it to the other side. You you can think of salvation in in this uh, multi-layered form like a ticket. Uh, A ticket to your favorite event that has been purchased in full by another party and is now waiting for you at will call. Now since the ticket's been secured, it it isn't your aim to earn what's already yours, is it? No, the aim is to press on, to, to clear the calendar, to, to launder that outfit, to wash the car, to get directions if you have children, to get a sitter, to make dinner plans, to leave on time, to fight the traffic so that you can get to the venue and lay hold of that ticket which has been kept for you all that time and will call. Now, none of those gyrations pay for the ticket that's already been purchased. None of those gyrations make you even worthy to receive it because from the moment it was paid for, the ticket was all yours. Your task was to press on, to persevere through the grind of life, arrive at the venue and take hold of that ticket. So here's the main point. The overriding aim for those in Christ at Philippi and those of us in Christ here at La Mirada, is to press on and to keep pressing on until as we read there in verse 14 we arrive at the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus and as the members of Paul's audience press on toward that goal he instructs them how to do so in a couple of ways first in terms of the way they think and we'll read about that in verses 12 through 16 and secondly in terms of the way that they act And that's verse 17 through the end of the passage. For Paul, really throughout the Bible, uh, right thinking precedes right acting. Your your mindset conditions your behavior. That's the way we press on in the faith. First by way of the head, then by way of the heart. So that's, that's the way forward today. Press on in the faith, first in terms of our mindset, then in terms of our behavior. Well, we'll begin here with uh, pressing on in terms of the mindset. Uh, And we see Paul's here in verse 13 is one that involves forgetting what lies behind. Now, notice that he doesn't say forget what lies behind. Uh, He doesn't say having forgotten what lies behind. But rather forgetting what lies behind. That's an ing word. It's a continuing action. It's something that's done and then done again and again and again and again. Paul hasn't entirely forgotten his past. Rather, he's continually forgetting his past so that it doesn't dominate his present. He's continually forgetting his successes at which we looked in verses 4 through 6, things that tempted him to say, "Uh, uh, yeah, I'm good enough. But he's also continually forgetting his sin, which was powerfully illustrated for us on Friday night, those of us who were at the film here in this room, Paul the Apostle, where uh, 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 Paul was uh, artistically portrayed to uh, constantly be remembering the faces of those uh, whom he had persecuted and even killed uh, for their faith when he was uh, Saul. Those things coming to his mind, tempting, tempting him to say, I'll never be good enough. Well, these are our challenges too, aren't they? Especially feeling as if we'll never be good enough, dogged by past sins. Our inability for, to, to forget these sometimes Powerful memories of sins forgiven. But Paul's mindset is to keep on forgetting what God has already forgiven and forgotten. Now for those of us that are are dogged by canceled sin, here are a couple of great verses. If you're taking notes, make sure you've got your pen at the ready. If you're not, exercise your memory. Isaiah 43, 25. Isaiah 43, 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Jeremiah 31, 34, which is quoted again, or at least alluded to, in Hebrews 8, 12 and Hebrews 10, 17. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God has forgotten your sins by way of Christ. Now you may think, well, okay, um, if God knows everything, then how is it possible for him to forget anything, even my past sins? I mean, surely this has to be uh, a matter of speaking, uh, a figurative language, if you will. To which I would ask in reply, if God's forgetfulness is figurative, then why not his forgiveness as well? I mean, this is a great tactic of the adversary. He he loves to employ this. Did God really say your sins are forgiven? Echoes of Genesis 3. Did God say? Well, in fact, he did. And because he did, Paul could instruct the Philippians to keep on forgetting what lies behind. So on the one hand, God's people are to be forgetting, while on the other hand, They are to be straining forward to what lies ahead. And what lies ahead? The prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verses 13 and 14 are freighted with athletic imagery. Uh, Take a look at verse 13 there. Uh, Paul talks about straining toward what lies ahead. Stretching, reaching is uh, another way it, it could be put. Verse 14, pressing on Toward the goal, both of which describe a mindset that's focused on what's in front and not what's behind. If you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, you'll recall that scene where legendary track coach Sam Musabini is showing British track star Harold Abrahams uh, why the great American sprinter Jackson Schultz can be beaten. Does anybody remember? Oh, you're no better than the first service. But I guess that's an old movie now, isn't it? Schultz could be beaten because when he'd get to the line, he'd always look back. (laughs) He'd always look back at his competitor and that cost him the gold medal in the uh, 1924 Paris Olympics with Abrahams winning the race. But it's not always looking back that keeps athletes from pressing on. Sometimes it's letting up, thinking that he or she has arrived and already crossed the line when, in fact, they have not. There's a pretty uh, well-traveled YouTube video of Texas Tech's DeAndre Washington letting up and casually dropping the football before crossing the goal line. He thought he'd scored a touchdown when in fact he hadn't because he'd let up. Now, lest you think, as I did, that that's rather unusual, oh, just keep scrolling. There's another video of Clemson's Ray Ray McLeod doing the same thing against Troy, no touchdown. Notre Dame's TJ Jones doing the same thing against Michigan, no touchdown. Marshall's Aaron Dobson doing the same thing against West Virginia University, no touchdown. Utah's Kalen Clay doing the same thing against Oregon, no touchdown. And lest you think it's just collegians who are susceptible to this, there's a a list of professionals. Eagles pro bowler Deshaun Jackson did the same thing against the Cowboys. Broncos Danny Trevathan did the same thing against the Ravens. the Cowboys' Leon Lett famously did so in Super Bowl Twenty-Seven. Some of you may recall that as he's uh, crossing the line. He, actually, even before he's crossing the line, he begins celebrating. And Don Beebe comes up from behind and strips him of the football. No touchdown. Our great temptation, especially in this age that is fraught with comfort, and and convenience and luxury is to either look back or to let up and think that we've arrived before reaching our goal. Years ago, I think it was my aunt, uh, she gave me the autobiography of Hank Aaron, in which there's a line that all these years later I've never forgotten. But before I tell you what that line is, let me tell you Uh, A couple of things about Hank Aaron. As a boy, he grew up in the poor section of Mobile, Alabama. But as a man, Aaron became very wealthy by playing baseball and breaking uh, Babe Ruth's home run record. So when his career was over, uh, as an expression of gratitude uh, to his mother for her support over all those years, he... uh, He wanted to liberate her from that poor section of Mobile and, as he put it, uh, buy her a big house in a new neighborhood. But as he went on to write, and here's the line, Mama said, she's not looking for any big house. She's just looking for Jesus. I love that. I love that. Mrs. Aaron wasn't looking to this world for her prize, for her satisfaction, for her goal, for having arrived. She's looking to the next life, to the next goal, toward that goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so my question for you this morning is, what are you looking at? Are you looking at things that are behind you? successes, or sins? Or are you looking forward? Are you pressing ahead toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ? In verse 15, Paul tells the Philippians, let those of us who are mature think that way. Think that way. And so a good question to prayerfully ask yourself in anticipation of approaching the table later on this morning is... um, Lord, in what direction am I looking? Lord, what in what way is my mindset oriented? Uh, d- does my thinking tend to lean backwards as I would have it or does it lean forward as you would have it? No matter how challenging the present may be, we can't lose our vision of the prize. We can't lose it. Some of the Philippians had. But as Gordon Fee put it, and some of us, again, saw it dramatically portrayed on the screen Friday night, even in a Roman prison, Paul had not lost his. Even there where he was working entirely against the current, Paul was pressing forward. So, the overriding aim for those in Christ is to press on. First, in terms of our mindset, and then second, in terms of our right behavior. That's point number two. We see this at the outset of verse 17, where Paul writes, "Uh, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Now, to our ears, uh, that that sounds... uh, uh, rather arrogant, doesn't it? Uh, egocentric, bodacious, just do what I do. But consider the apostles' words in the light of uh, three things. First of all, Paul's appealing here to a style of learning. Learning by doing. It's a basic form of learning. As a baby, uh, you didn't learn to walk, you didn't learn to talk, you didn't learn to uh, eat by reading up on each one, right? Taking tests until you were ready and then you began. No, you you learned by doing. Uh, Learning by doing was rooted in Jewish culture where students followed the words as well as the examples of their teachers. Consider that Jesus' disciples learned from him by living with him. This is why Paul writes in chapter four, verse nine, "What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and why God uh, instructs elders to be examples to the flock." First Peter five verse three. Second, notice that Paul isn't commending just his own example to the Philippians, rather. Uh, he's also uh, commending to them, those who walk according to the example you have in us. In fact, he says, keep your eyes on them. That that phrase there is is rooted in the term from which we get the word scope. (laughs) Be scoping out the scene. Be looking for persons whom you can imitate. Uh, 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 Survey the lamp. Notice who's out there. Earlier this week, Kenny made the observation that in verses twelve through six, Paul is basically saying, "Keep your eyes on the prize keep looking forward don 't look back and then in seventeen through four one he 's basically saying, "Keep your eyes on those whose eyes are on the prize it 's important to have role models in the faith, men and women whose examples are worthy of imitation. It took some time just this past week to, to think back over the years and remember those whom I have imitated in the faith. came up with a list of about six or seven men and women who've made a profound impact on my life in that way. But it's what we imitate in them that's most important. So third... Notice that Paul doesn't expect the Philippians to imitate him in every way. Not in every way, but only a couple of ways. First, those ways that he's already outlined here in the book of Philippians, and particularly in chapter 3. But second, according to the ways in which Paul imitates Christ. Consider his words to the church at Corinth. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. And to the Church of Thessalonica, you become imitators of us and of the Lord. First Thessalonians 1, 6. See, Christians don't model their lives after a, a bare written code. No. Rather, Christians model their lives after the written word as fulfilled by the incarnate word truth in principle, fulfilled by truth in person. Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's the one whose life we imitate as we see it lived out in others. Now, I say Jesus Christ and him crucified because that makes all the difference in the Jesus whom we worship. See, those who are enemies of the cross, and we read about them in verses 17 through 19, those persons who have not, who've chosen not to press on, well, they end up worshiping earthly things, don't they? Well, basking in the sordid and, and passing glory of those things. But those who are friends of the cross, and we read about them in verses 20 and 21, they're they're, they're the ones who are pressing on, they're gonna end up worshiping heavenly things, namely Christ himself, while they look forward to basking in his glory forever and ever. So Paul reminds the Philippians that their primary allegiance isn't uh, to to things of this earth, and, and instead begins verse 20 by declaring, but our citizenship is in heaven. It's a citizenship of supreme worth. Now, you you already know, if you've been with us for uh, any time in this series, that Philippi was a Roman colony. Her inhabitants, including the Christians there, were very proud of the uh, uh, power and the privileges that came with their citizenship even though it was a long way from Rome, uh, 800 miles from Rome, Philippi bore the marks of that great city and culture. Roman dress was worn in Philippi. Roman magistrates governed in Philippi. Roman justice was administered in Philippi. Roman morals were followed in Philippi. Latin was spoken in Philippi. But the traveling Roman uh, merchant or soldier Philippi was like Rome away from home. Very much, I imagine, like L.A.'s uh, Chinatown and Koreatown and Thai town and Filipino town and little Tokyo and little Armenia and little Ethiopia and all those communities are to those traveling and living and working here far away from their native land. I think I got just a little taste of that during our years in Indiana, those, those 14 years in Indiana, as often as I, I vi- visited La Poblanita. La Poblanita is just a little market, a little bodega, really, uh, with a, a restaurant in the back, a few tables and a counter. And as a third generation Los Angelino, living in the midst of an ex, ex- Expansive, uh, a piece of farmland. I, I mean, from where we lived, it just went on into Ohio, up into Michigan, and out into Illinois and down into Kentucky. I mean, it was huge. La Poblanita—it it was my little California colony. That—that <laughs> that is where the, the 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 place to which I would retreat walking in the door there and the first thing i was met with was the, the smell of corn tortillas and mexican pastries it was painted in shades of uh, pale yellow and and pink and green the meat came on the plate shredded not ground uh, the salsa came out of a blender and not a bottle When I ordered guacamole from Luis, the first thing he did was reach into the refrigerator and pull out two avocados and begin to prepare it. Telemundo spoke to me from the TV that was mounted on the wall, and I spoke to my servers in Spanish. And sometimes when they'd bring me my horchata, I would grab that thing, and I'd flip sideways in the booth, and I'd lean back on the wall, and I'd close my eyes, and I'd take a deep breath, and I was home. (laughs) <laughs> all those miles away in the middle of the cornfields of Indiana, I was transported. I was at home in Whittier, and it was beautiful. Well, in making this declaration, Paul reminds the Philippian Christians that, well, well the city of Philippi, that this colonial outpost bore the marks of Rome. The church at Philippi was a heavenly outpost that should bear the marks of heaven. And in the same way, grace should bear the marks of heaven. Grace should be for us a colony of our heavenly home, a taste of our heavenly home, a home away from home a place where we're instructed and encouraged in terms of our mindset as we press on through this world in terms of our behavior as we press on through this world a place where we can find men and women whose Christ-like faith is worthy of imitation modeling for us what it means to be uh, what it means to press on through this world in the way that we think and act while according to one, standing firm as we do Until the day when we reach the world to come and receive the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. May we find this place to be that kind of a home. May we make, each and every one of us, make this place that kind of a home. So as we come to the table this morning, I pray that we do so as friends of the cross thankful for sins forgiven, strengthened to keep pressing on, confident that he who began a, a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you believe that, then this table's for you. If you don't believe that, then this table is not for you. And, and you shouldn't approach it until... You can confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. If you believe that, but you're not living like it, then you need to confess your sin to God. Repent from it, and then come and eat and drink. As the servers come forward and uh, prepare the elements, let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for securing our salvation in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Help us as we press on through this life and look forward to the prize awaiting us on the last day. Keep us ever faithful to you, and may that faith be worthy of imitation by others. And may our time around this table to us be like home, a taste of heaven here and now.